The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 152 for May 12th, 2008. And hi, John. How are you? Hi. <laughs> uh, it hi, is. Hi to mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. Mother's Happy Day. belated Mother's Day to all the uh, the mothers out there. Uh, OK, so we are here. This is, of course, the Mac Observer's Mac Geek uh, podcast number 152 coming up on our third year in uh, in action here. And, and we're going to have to do something. We might. I was thinking about changing the theme song, you know, and I've got some ideas. So we'll, we'll have to see. I don't know. It's kind of become part of our our, our well, foundation. We've had some fun variations. Yeah, but I'm thinking maybe maybe we'll have a dramatic change, but I don't know. We'll have to we'll, we'll, we'll have really? to mess around with it. I don't know. So I would say if anybody out there has any uh, musical oh, yeah. creation talent, uh, real or electronic. Can I ask people to send in something? Of course you no, can. I can't do that. Sure you yes, can. Yes, I can. Hey, if you got a short little ditty that you think uh, would would uh, embrace the spirit of the show, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> send it in. Yeah, well, they, actually, somebody today, uh, uh, Melissa, who is John Welch's wife, uh, she posted, she created a, uh, a, she took a picture of me and painted it. And there's the phone ringing. I'm sure that's not her. And so we've turned that off. Uh, but anyway, so, yeah, so people create all kinds of different stuff. And I'll, I'll send you the link to that. We'll put it in the show notes for, for those of you that want to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh we have all kinds of stuff to go through as usual, way, way overloaded here. And that's a good thing. Thanks to all of you. Uh, and I, I want to start right with the uh, kind of the meat of the of the of the show here, John. Have I been hacked? And that that's the question that Jafar asks. And specifically, he asks, I have a MacBook Pro, which I use at work on a college wireless network whose security mm-hmm. record is, to say the least, questionable. I can connect with 802.1x web encryption. Anyway, I had my firewall set on set access for specific services and applications. And in short, I got hacked, or at least I think I got hacked. It was over a long period of time, a month at least, off and on. When I fired up a terminal, a suspicious host name was in the prompt, but I thought it was just symptomatic of the usual sysadmin quirkiness. Today, I noticed the same name shows up in Win's NetBIOS name tab in Network System Preferences. I emailed IT and they said it was not normal and to go see them. I didn't have any sharing enabled, but maybe I had ports open I shouldn't have due to firewall settings. So what do I do now post-hack? I have my set my firewall to essential services only and it's okay, I guess. But I don't know. Do I have to change all my passwords? What do I do? Okay. I don't think he was hacked, John. No, we, we want to take a step back here and I'll go into some detail later. But uh, although... Depending on the school, some IT departments are top-notch and some are running on a shoestring. That's true. Um, and, and it sounds like from the wording of that email that, that, that there have been some stumbles as far as the, the IT group or the perception of them. But yeah, to, to, so to link this behavior to being hacked, I, I'd say, is premature. But it is disconcerting when you look in your uh, terminal or somewhere in system preferences and see names pre-populated that you had never typed before. And, and, but, but here's what happens is I, I notice this when I go to hotels, cause I do spend some time mm-hmm. in the terminal. So occasionally when I go to a hotel, 
you know, I'll go to the terminal and I'll say, oh, yeah, there's a different name. And, and what happens is your computer gets an IP address from the hotel or in Jafar's case from the college network. Mm-hmm. A lot of times there is a reverse lookup on that IP address, meaning it resolves to something else. If you if you go to if you find out what your IP is or in, in many cases, your public IP. So go to what is my and it'll tell you what your public IP is. If you then go to the terminal and type NS lookup space and then that public IP, it's going to return back the the reverse DNS lookup of that name, i.e. the caller ID, what what that name is registered as. And that, or at least the first part of that, is what's going to appear in the terminal and then eventually also in the NetBIOS name in system preferences. So my guess is the college campus. Now, IT should have known this, but I mean, based on what he says about IT, we don't really trust what like they I was say. saying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or it could be a different person, you know, maybe interns True. or students, you know, running on shifts. And yeah. one person does something saying, hey, that's a neat feature. Let's enable that. And then the other one's like, huh? Who knows? That's true. Yeah. Tell us your, your stories, right. positive or negative about that, <laughs> especially if you have been an a- You know, Skype just ate your connection a- there, John. You know, the world. You're, you're, you're back with us, but Skype ate your connection for about uh, t- five seconds there. But, but we got we got the gist of it. Uh, mm. So. So, yeah, it's that reverse lookup that's appearing there. No one has hacked your machine, at least in that sense. Now, there is a place we could look for this. Right, John, if we go to the sharing preference pane, uh, that is where you set your machine name. So and as far as I know, nothing can can kind of reach out and touch that. So if something has if that has changed, then I think you'd, you'd be concerned about being the victim of, of an attack. Mm. That's a strange thing for someone to try and change if they've bothered to hack into your machine. There's many other things that they could do that would actually potentially benefit a hacker, whereas that's just kind of messing with your head. But it certainly could work. So. Uh, any more thoughts on this before we move on to uh, our, um, our next one, John? So two things. So one, I've, I've seen a situation where, yeah, if you set the name and sharing, the network will pick up on that. And I think you you, you uh, mentioned that. Um, but the other thing is, you know, how you know you're, you are being hacked and just a, a couple of very quick suggestions about that. So the one place I would look would be in network utility or command line. Um, there is a netstat command, and that's a very useful command. I think if you're on the command line, you want to say netstat-a. And in network utility, I think you want to say show all connections. If you really suspect that someone at least is is, is launching a network-based attack, netstat shows you every single network connection that you have to anybody anywhere, depending on how you issue the command. So if you think you're being hacked, look there. If you see machines in that list that shouldn't be there or unfamiliar, and you know that's a hard thing to cover in a... <laughs> a in the like the time we have, right? So we won't. Um, the other thing is, if you look in security, um, firewall advanced, there is something enable firewall logging. If you open the log, you will see the attempts that at least the uh, OS10 firewall has detected of people getting to your machine. And the other thing, I believe, I don't have it in front of me at, at the moment, but you can also go in this stealth mode if you're concerned about hacking. The warning is that some things may not work right if you're in stealth mode because you're basically invisible on the network. But if if you are in a you know kind of loose environment like a college campus, you may want to turn on that stealth mode just to so you're not as obvious a target as everybody else. Yep, yep, not a bad idea. All right, uh, so Joe wrote in, and I'm not going to try and actually pronounce Joe's name because I'm I'm going to fail. So I'm just going to say Joe. I'm actually having a problem with my Safari. Every time I misspell a URL, it redirects me to www domainhost.nl and that's d-o-m-e-i-n host.nl 
The strange thing is that Firefox does not do that. I tried everything I can imagine, even checking my router configuration. Any ideas? I think this is DNS as well, John. Uh, Firefox and Safari do different things when they don't know a URL. Safari will go out of its way to try and add a www to the beginning of whatever you type and a .com, .net, and .org to the end. Uh, but it's for the first thing it's going to do is go and, and do some, some DNS lookups. And I've seen it where I've been at, again, hotels or you know third-party networks where something in the DNS server grabs hold of that and says, nope, I got it. If you're going to look up... Uh, you know, Dave Hamilton, right? If I just type Dave Hamilton and not DaveHamilton.com, which isn't my website, it's some car dealer in, in the Pacific Northwest. But anyway, uh, you go visit his site, you know, if you want to do that. That's a nice little plug for him. Then tell him to sell me his domain. But uh, anyway, uh, so if you go and do that, Safari on my home network here will just automatically bring you to DaveHamilton.com. But on some hotel networks, you type Dave Hamilton and it brings you to... Uh, whatever their page is for the defaults. And I think that's what's going on here is the DNS server at wherever uh, Joe is, is causing some problems that that that's kind of my thought. I'm with you on that. The okay. only thing is looking at the email is that he is in, which is why we didn't try to pronounce the name because we don't know Portuguese is he's in Brazil, but that's a dot NL. Yeah. Which I think is Netherlands. So I'm trying to figure the connection between that. That is unusual. If it was a dot, if it was a, the, is it BZ? I'm sorry. Um, BR. BR, Brazil. Sorry. Um, that would make sense to me. But since it's in a totally, you know, not very close by part of the world, I'm wondering why it's coming up with that. If maybe somebody had, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm with you. The, the only thing could be whatever DNS he's talking to. If they fail, maybe they, for whatever reason, redirect to this this site here. Because we've seen that in the browsers now. Yep. Like I think Safari and, and Firefox and others will, if they can't find something, put it in a Google search. Right. Um, like pre-populated in the browser, which is a nice feature. And it also the lookup feature is nice, except when it doesn't quite work. So I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of baffled by that one. That, okay, well, I, I have an idea. I've never seen that. I, I'm going uh, I'm to pull out Occam's razor again. And... Uh, I think his DNS server, there's no reason that his DNS server has to be uh, whatever his ISP's DNS server is. It's possible he's using a DNS server from somewhere else for some for other reason. reason. Right. <laughs> so, I, I mean, it, you know, it stands to reason that that's what's going on. So the way to the way to do that, the way to deal with that is to go to OpenDNS.com. I think it's .com. I got Pilot Pete here. Do you use OpenDNS? Maybe, uh, maybe .net. Maybe .net, but I think it is .com. Okay, I, okay, I, I think it is. It, yeah, it's OpenDNS.com. Thank you. Uh, and and that is a. You know what? I'm going to bring Pete back in here because Pete uses OpenDNS. Tell us what OpenDNS is, and you know the elevator pitch. Okay, the qu the quick and dirty on it is uh, instead of going to your ISPs, uh, you set up an account with them quickly uh, that reads your IP address. And anytime you do a search, or for that matter, go to any website, it goes to their DNS server, it resolves to the IP address, and you can then set various levels of filtering on it if you like. For instance, uh, if my son were to try to go to a nefarious website, he would get a picture of me that says, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's very cool. It, yeah, and it's it's beautiful for filtering out uh, bad stuff, and you and you have total control over what level 
be it, you know, if you want to even filter out no lingerie, you can set that strict of a level of filtering on it. So it does pretty neat stuff. Huh? Okay. So there you, so there you go. So Joe, go ahead and use open DNS, uh, as your domain server. If you don't want to use it long term, that's fine, but, but go ahead and test with that because then you're certain that you're under you're 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 not in control of the domain server open DNS is, but at least you've gone and populated it with something that, you know, in all likelihood is not going to redirect you to a site in the Netherlands uh, by accident. And if that's still happening, then, well, maybe you have been hacked. I, I you know, honestly, I would say the, the place to look would be how you're getting your your um, DNS server assigned. If, you, if you're doing DHCP, unless you have it hard coded somewhere. So that's what I'm wondering if at some point someone had been doing some troubleshooting on the machine had a, and had punched in a manual IP address for a DNS server, which you can do. And actually, I have some in my head. I won't mention them because I don't want to dogpile on certain ISPs. But there, there are some addresses that I think, and you probably know the same thing, Dave, yep. that are numerical where, hey, if you're in a situation where DNS is just not working, all right, I'll punch in this this address. And, and I know that's a DNS that will always work and I can always get to and eliminate that potential problem yep so that's right that's right yep and I've, I've been known to do that in fact i still have some dns servers from the mid 90s burned into my my permanent memory because uh because i was constantly using them out in the field to make sure i knew that i was connecting to a server that was going to be reliable uh yep. so and all i'll say i guess is about those is that the ones i have in my head are, are class a addresses and that all the digits are single digits that's all i'll say <laughs> there you go. That's right. Actually, yeah, those will work, too. That's right. Yeah. Uh, OK, our first sponsor for this show is actually a new sponsor, uh, but but certainly not products that are new to us. Uh, it's Ecamm Network. And tonight we're talking about their call recorder for Skype. They make all kinds of unique, affordable Mac apps. Call recorder. It's fourteen ninety five U.S. Uh, but of course, you can get a free demo. And to put it simply, call recorder, you install it, you relaunch Skype. And you're done. You've got recording controls for Skype right there. You can record audio, video, uh, or both. You can record uh, video with picture in picture. You can record uh, screen side-by-side -side video if you want your picture as big as the other one, and then you can chop them up. Uh, it, but it saves them right out to a file with the same name as the person you talked to. I've done this with my brother before. Uh, it's a fantastic little piece of software. And I was so happy when I found out that they were uh, sponsoring the show. As you know, we love to have sponsors uh, that, that make products that, that we use here because it, it, uh, it kind of keeps it all in the family. And we really, really appreciate that. So check out Call Recorder from, uh, from Ecamm Network. Again, it's fourteen ninety five, and you can get a free demo at uh, ecam.com, E-C-A-M-M.com. Uh, so, and you can put chapter markers in with this thing. You can record uh, separate tracks if you really want to and, and get, you know, really complex and then pull them into iMovie and bounce back and forth. So really, really flexible. Works very, very well. So call recorder for Skype from ecam, E-C-A-M-M.com. And with that, it's time to move on to some tips and some questions. We've kind of blended these in for the uh, for the remainder of the show here. Last week, John, we talked about gigabytes and we got we got a lot right. There, there, there was an interesting thing, though, as, as Nick pointed out, uh, and he has a couple of things that he talked about. But but this was this is the most important one. I thought the reason one gigabyte 
equals 10 to the ninth power, i.e. 1 billion bytes, if I've done my math and homework correctly, mm-hmm. uh, on, is on disk drives is because, and, 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 and I, I will not editorialize, but Nick certainly did, uh, is because when people in Congress get confused, they demand bad laws instead of educating themselves. In this case, the law says that for the purpose of measuring disk drives, one gigabyte equals one billion bytes. Don't blame Apple for this one. And he's right. I followed up and did some research. And sure enough, they they have mandated that you cannot be sued. If you're a hard drive manufacturer or in the business of selling hard drives, you cannot be sued if you use the 10 to the ninth power to describe the size of your drive. Whether it's right or wrong, it is nice to know that it's consistent. And when we look at drive sizes, we can compare (laughs) apples to apples, even if we're only even if we're comparing apples to Dell's. Well, the only thing, Dave, is that it is wrong. And you got to admit that. But no, I mean, you can't. It's like legislating physics. I mean, so anyway, so and, and yeah, I, I did some research, too. So there have been some class action lawsuits against uh, flash memory vendors and hard drive vendors. Right. Saying you're lying to us. You're, you're misrepresenting your capacity. And I think the outcome was, OK, in terms of the hard drive world, we will agree. And I think you hinted at this last time, Dave, if the vendor clearly states as apple does to their credit i gave right. them a finger wag but now i'll give them a you know tip of the hat um they do list this saying all right here's how we define this um and i guess the whole problem a lot of people wrote in about this is the computer people you know kind of want to use their own terminology right um but 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 i and you know i zeroed in i think unintentionally on the biggest problem is that even though they are allowed to define things um, in terms of conventional usage, when you look at something like this utility, files will not change. Right. They will never change the way that a file, and disk utility is doing its job. It's saying, okay, John, you got a 239 gigabyte drive. It's 250 um, billion uh, bytes. Right. Yeah. And that's really telling the truth. That is where the whole problem is, is when it breaks down between the, the how you define a hard drive size and how hard drives under the OS of today define a file size. So yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Uh, so, it's, thank- uh, but, it, but being a computer person, it strikes it, it, it feels it, bad. I, I feel, it? well, I feel, you know, like it's just clear. You just use the right units and stuff, but it's people that aren't into computers and are not <laughs> using base two. Right. It's like, why are you guys inventing another way to count? So I, I can certainly understand the, the reason you want to legislate it to be the conventional usage. And I think that's all we have to say. We we got a very in- interesting question here from Robert, um, and I still don't believe the answer, but we're gonna we're gonna answer it anyway. Hey guys, it's Robert from New Jersey. I'm calling uh, because I have a question about something you addressed in the last show, number one fifty one, regarding an N base station, an N base air, airport station, and how if you had multiple computers, you, you use the scenario of having four other N base uh, Macintoshes on that network, that it um, chops up the bandwidth into four equal parts. Um, I'm assuming that's four equal parts if everyone is accessing the network simultaneously at the same time. If for instance, I have uh, 
four four computers on that network, and one is in sleep mode. The other one is being used by the uh, a user, but is not accessing the network at that time. Uh, and then let's say the other two are accessing the network or connected to the internet. Uh, would would it not make it make sense that those computers that are idle? Or, or not accessing the network would not be taking up any of that bandwidth? Or does the N, is the N stupid enough or smart enough to see that there are four computers in the area and still hacks that bandwidth up into four equal parts? Um, I'm assuming that it's, it's, it's the earlier rather than the latter. Uh, if you could expand on that, uh, I'm interested. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. Okay, so... To answer the first part of the question, you're absolutely right, Robert. It is the former that it will share the bandwidth amongst all the computers that are actively using it, not chop it up based on the number of people that are connected or the number of nodes that are connected, but not in use. But it does bring up an interesting question, which we we did a little bit of research here and and I'll ask the question, John, and then uh, you've got the answers. So the question is. At what point does the amount of idle but connected wireless clients begin to negatively impact the uh, the wireless network? You know, at some point, you got all these things connected. At what point do you actually begin to notice some degradation? And John, I, I, I turn it over to you. Great. And, you know, this this was difficult to find because, well, the one problem was a lot of the reports that talked about this uh, you had to pay for. <laughs> <laughs> so my first way to solve this problem would be to do it empirically. And I guess Robert was working towards that or thinking about it with four machines, but I don't have, you know, uh, immediately that many machines. So I couldn't do an empirical study, which is just watching what happens and drawing conclusions from that. But I did find a, a study done uh, by some folks at Rutgers university, which I think is uh, kind of close to both of us, Dave. Um, yeah. And they indicate, though, to me, this is counterintuitive. So my initial assumption is that a wireless network is more of a shared medium than a switched medium. And that, uh, and uh, a little tangent here, uh, a lot of networks when they started were shared networks and that everybody was on the same network. And, you know, somebody talked, everybody else had the potential to hear what you were saying. And as you could imagine, that gets inefficient if everybody starts doing a lot of talking. versus what's known as a switch network where the device that routes the traffic is smart enough to say, okay, you're going from here to here. I don't need to tell everybody about that. And it's just hugely more efficient. I mean, especially in the days I remember this at, uh, you know, the workplace when we went from 10 megabit, even a 10 megabit connection shared to switched. Oh, huge. It was just like night and day. Oh yeah. They use something. I think one, one part, one core part of it, and then we'll get back to the the point, whatever it is, um, is that you (laughs) use something called, Uh, I think it's called a binary exponential backoff, which is one formula that a lot of shared networks would use. Whereas if, okay, you get in the network, oh, there's a collision. I'm going to back off a number of whatever unit of time, and then I'm going to keep increasing that by in a binary fashion, because the chances are I won't keep, you know, colliding with all the other people. But, you know, that's very, very inefficient. Right. Um, But so basically the thing that I found in this study, they said that, up to 127 clients, there is no measurable degradation in performance and that it splits it up as one would expect on a switch versus a hub. So and I think, Dave, you and I were both 
thinking that is really counterintuitive because a radio is is a shared medium. But then on the other hand, you got probably really, you know, brilliant people working on these wireless protocols <laughs> thinking about that problem, saying, gee, maybe we should, you know, account for yep. tens or hundreds of people on the network and make sure that that doesn't bring everything down. I think what you and so, I have seen okay. in the past when we talk about the problems is that there's just way too many people and the device cannot keep track of more than 50 people. Like in the case of Apple, they advertise either 10 for the low-end device or 50 for the high-end device. Beyond that, forget it. Okay, so I let's 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 go down this rat hole a little bit because we're already halfway down it. Um, and I'm going to do this in reverse order. So uh, last in, first out. You said Apple and, and many vendors have limits on their devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of those limits are due to the encryption scheme used. Uh, and I, I'm not going to go deep into this because, frankly, I can't. Uh, not not because I'm bound by secrecy, but because my knowledge is extremely limited in this regard. But but from everything I read, different security encryption protocols uh, mandate mm. that the router is is only capable of handling X number of those connections and keeping essentially all those balls in the air uh, mm. at the same time. I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you need relatively more. Yeah. More and, RAM and, and these more, devices right. usually don't have. A high-end processor. They have an embedded exactly. low speed, probably in the hundreds of megahertz versus multiple core gigahertz. Right. So, okay, <laughs> right. I'm with you. No, okay. no, that's a, a good point. Yep. So, so that's that's one thing. Now, uh, you know, certainly at MacWorld Expo, even without or any expo, I, I don't want to certainly target MacWorld. We saw problems there, but I've <laughs> seen them. At, I mean, we see these problems all over the place at any expo. Uh, it, you know, you try and connect to a wireless network. I don't think it's the number of idle clients. I think it's the number of active clients that's causing yes. a problem there. Yes. So but y- you mentioned something interesting. You said there are smart people out there working on this stuff and that they've thought about a way of doing this. And, you know, it kind of hit me. What if and, I, and I'm totally going out on a limb here. I have no knowledge to back this up. Th- th- this is just my my thought here, John. And, and then we'll just we'll just move on. Uh, but my thought is what if they said, okay, look, there's, you know, let, what if we take 98% of the bandwidth that we have available in this channel spectrum and we use that for throughput, but we save, we carve out this other 2% that is always and only going to be used for uh, wireless network maintenance, essentially request to join requests to keep alive, requests to leave, whatever needs to happen, you know, the maintenance portion of the network, whatever that needs to be. I mean, that would be one way of, of chopping it off. And of course, I, you know, again, pure speculation. I have no idea if that's how it's done, but, but that would be one way of trying to chop that up and, and, and yet keep things efficient. And, and it would also explain why one way to explain why we don't see any Net measurable degradation up to 127 because they've already accounted for that degradation. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just pulling things out of thin air. Pretty much. You yeah. can pull things out of thin air and have them appear in this uh, even thinner air here on the show by calling in. And we always forget to do this, so we're going to do it now. The phone number, John, is go. 206 666 geek, which is 4335. You wow. can email us at feedback. At MacGeekGab.com, or you can Skype us to MacGeekGab. Any of those ways gets to us. We love to hear from you, and it's a wonderful thing. And with that, I think it's time to hear from Paul. 
and I have two tips for your listeners. Oh, oh, we got to rewind. All right, go ahead, Paul. and John. This is Paul Scott from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I have two tips for your listeners today. One listener called in last week and mentioned that his full message search wasn't working in mail. Well, I had the same problem the very next day myself and noticed Spotlight was re-indexing when I was trying to do my search. If you wait for Spotlight to finish indexing, your full message search will reappear on your mail application. The second tip was a trackpad issue I ran into about a week ago. My trackpad stopped responding properly. I couldn't click. It would click randomly and jump around. Well, after doing some troubleshooting, I found the battery in my laptop had exploded and had bowed out at the top of the battery, (laughs) pressing against the trackpad, stopping the uh, trackpad from working correctly. So if your trackpad starts acting erratically, take the battery out, try using your trackpad and see if it works normally. If it does, take a close look at the battery and see if the battery has changed shape. Uh, That's all I have for today, and this is the part where you'll cut me off. Paul, you are an extremely calm man for just having dealt with a battery that exploded in your own words. That's all I'm going to say. These are great tips. Good to know. It almost feels like a public service announcement. But uh, yeah, if if we've ever got bad news to deliver, I'm just going to call Paul and have him just have him just spill it out for us. Uh, The one thing I'm thinking when I heard that was, um, I don't know if you remember the Monty Python sketch, but oh, mother, don't be so sentimental. Things explode every day. (laughs) If I thought of that exploding battery, I think it was a leaking battery. But still, now, the other thing I remember about trackpads (laughs) is moisture. Moisture bad because they're, I think, capacitive devices. So uh, because I've noticed that if your fingers are moist. These pads don't work great. Yeah, yep. And while while John gets a sip of water to uh, to mm. moisten to moisten his uh, sultry dulcet tones, there, uh, <laughs> I, I will I will do my best to read Alex' question. Ah, thank you. Alec writes, hello again, John and Dave. I have yet another question, and who better to ask than my two favorite Mac geeks? I have iStat Pro installed, and I've been looking at the process that my processor is doing at that time. Whenever I have dashboard open, I can always see this certain process is, from what I can see, quote, Windows S-E-R, end quote. I think that this is because I have Windows computers on at the time and they show up in my Finder. I want to see what my Mac is like with its full processor free. Could you please tell me how to get rid of Windows PCs off my Mac network? (laughs) Go. You go. His Mac is whack. No. No. Because I thought you were going to say that. No, the problem is here. Okay, first, don't do anything. It is not Windows networking. No, this is a process, and we will lead you on the path to enlightenment. What you want to do is start up Activity Monitor. And what I suspect is because all the all the processes in iStat map to, to real processes. The problem is, and, and from what I've seen, especially in the dashboard widgets, you can't grow it. So you can misinterpret something and and i don't blame you for thinking this was a windows server process no it was a windows server which is a very important process and there's a good reason that it's taking up time in mac os because that's the process that pretty much handles all of what you see yeah from from what i understand john and i i you know you know me i i did the consulting thing for so long that I'm fair. I've gotten fairly adept at taking very complex things and watering them down and, and explaining them in, in ways that, that make sense mm-hmm. to, to those of us that are humans here. 
but sometimes <laughs> I go too far. And so I'm, I, I fear I may go too far with this, but, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it's just the way I roll. The Windows server process, I believe, owns all of the applications underneath it. Uh, it. Think of it in a hierarchy. And when you kill the Windows server process, you kill every open application that you have in and believe in that user account. I believe it's 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 isolated to user accounts. So uh, regardless of whether or not my explanation is right, the, the result is if you kill Windows server, you can kiss all your applications or at least your open applications. Goodbye for that session. Mm -hmm. You can relaunch them again once you're logged back in. But uh, but yeah. Right. So uh, the, the other observation I want to make is for activity monitor. Of course, you want to. So I suspect he was viewing things in the my processes view, which I've seen before. I think I told you about a problem we had a couple of weeks ago with my, my pal Josh, where we, at first we didn't know what was taking all the processor because we were in my processes. You want to go to activity monitor and say right. all processes are actually what I've noticed as of late. I don't know if it's always been here. All processes, comma, hierarchically. Yeah. Which and actually, if you do that, you will see that Windows Server is not well. It's one top level thing launched by Launch D. Well, Launch D is the king of all processes. I mean, that pretty much launches everything underneath it. But 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 the uh, hierarchy view, I think, is very interesting. I haven't really looked at it in detail before. But so the thing is here, uh, my suggestion is go to Activity Monitor for detailed information about the processes, because this one, as they pointed out, you can kill it off and it'll you know, log you out and restart, but be careful about killing, killing off processes. <laughs> yeah. Be very careful. All right. Uh, our, our second sponsor for this show, John is Barebones software at barebones.com with Yojimbo. And as we were prepping the show tonight, uh, you know, I use Yojimbo to prep the show and there's so much of it. I take for granted. And Pilot Pete was sitting here telling me, Dave, you know, there's all these things that you do with Yojimbo and you should mention them. I thought, well, no, you should mention them, Pete. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Uh, Yojimbo is, uh, in a couple words, uh, my digital life. Uh, it is the one program that I would put on my computer if I had a, a choice to put only one on there. Uh, I use it as a password manager because it stores everything encrypted. Uh, at work, I have read files that I have to maintain for months at a time uh, and refer back to information. And I used to keep a, a binder with me with all that information. And, of course, I'd drop it and it would fly everywhere. That doesn't happen now. Um, it, it has smart folders. So when you put a new item in, you can simply put a tag on it. It'll automatically file it in the smart folder for you. Uh, it's uh, I use it when I get a new piece of software and I need to keep the license key. Uh, I just put I just put license key on it. It automatically goes into there. So if I ever need to refer back to it, bang, it's there. Um, schedules, I handle my entire month at a time uh, from my schedule to my receipts to the catering that I order on flights I'm going to take. All those things are then referred back. All I have to do is go to my April 08 travel. Bang, it's all right there for me to find. Um, expense reports, I do those every month that go back to those. Um, you're able to cap capture web pages, uh, write notes. Uh, I actually use uh, digital images to uh, take photos of my receipts that I have to submit to the company and file all those right in one folder with a click of a click of a mouse. If you want to organize your digital life, Yojimbo is the way to go. 
it's it's an incredible program. Thirty nine bucks from barebones.com. Thanks, Pete. And 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 I couldn't agree more, actually. And all that stuff I take for granted. I even will go so far as to say this next comment is actually being played from an audio file buried in the show notes inside Yojimbo. So it, it really does. It, 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 it is a great way to organize your digital life. 39 bucks from barebones.com. And with that, uh, Rex, we'll take it away. Hi, Dave. Hi, John. This is Rex. I'm calling from Minneapolis. And I've just purchased a time capsule, which I use for... Uh, time machine backups, and I also dumped a very large iTunes library, uh, which I use uh, regularly on it. And it occurred to me after doing so, uh, loading all that information, that uh, I need to back that up. Now, Apple's only solution for this right now is an archive, which you do at airport utility. But I've found out that you can't do incremental updates with the archive. It's completely start all over uh, and create a brand new archive, which takes several hours. I'm wondering if you know of a solution to just regularly do backups from time capsule onto another drive. Uh, I'd feel a lot more safe and secure knowing that my unique files are uh, uh, safely tucked away in case my time capsule broke down. Uh, that would be a nightmare scenario. Thanks. Bye. All right. Very, very interesting question and good for a, a quick note. Time machine is meant to back up the local drives to either another local uh, external drive or to the network storage device called the time capsule. Now, the time capsule is just a typical network storage device, John, right? I mean, it's it, well, it's got it's got a wireless router built into it. But as far as the network storage, it's just network storage. The limitation here is in time machine and time machine is not meant, not built currently to back up network stores to other network stores. Hmm. Right. But you could use Super Duper or uh, ProSoft data backup or retrospect or anything like that to deal with. Once you've mounted that time capsule volume, you could back that up using anything you wanted, but time machine's not going to do it. And, and if you're sticking in the, you know, in the Apple umbrella only, then don't use the time capsule to store active user data. Use it only to store time machine generated backups. Right. John, I'm with you. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that, that I don't think there's a whole lot more to say there, but uh, I, I thought Rex's question was a good opportunity to, to make that clear that it, it, that there's this paradigm and, and the time capsule is not a storage device for anything other than backups inside the Apple paradigm. Well, I mean, you can make it kind of a NAS drive, right? Oh, it is a NAS drive. You just can't use Time but Machine that, to back up any NAS drive. Right. So it's not at this point, and I, I suspect it's a intentional you know, design thing, is that they, they, they want to kind of roll out what it can do incrementally. And I know a lot of people would like to back up the you know, different types of drives using Time Machine, but uh, not yet. Right. And and Pilot Pete actually had a good question here. Could you attach another drive to the time machine? And you can. With that, you can archive all the data that's on the time. Sorry, 
can you attach another USB external drive to the time capsule and then sure. back things up with that way? And you can, but not in the way you would expect. You can take the data that's on the time capsule and archive it off to the, to the external drive, but not incremental backups. It's a, you know, wipe it and bring it back kind of thing all for one. Uh, And it's, if you have just backups out there and you want to archive them, great. That way you've got two copies of your backups, but otherwise it's probably not what you're looking for. And certainly not what Rex was looking for. So Mm -hmm. speaking of hard drives, let's talk about Joseph's question here, John. Joseph says, I have a MacBook Pro 2.2 gigahertz, which I bought in August of 2007. I bought it with a 160 gig hard drive and now I'm lusting for a bigger one. What kind of a hassle is it to install a new drive? If it's a reasonable task, preferably not having to take apart the whole machine, what would you recommend in terms of a drive manufacturer and a place to buy it from? At this point, I'm thinking if I could get a 250 gig drive replacement, would that be good? But I've also seen 320 gig and I think even high capa- higher capacity drives. What would you recommend? John, do you want to take this? Yes. So from what I can see on the MacBook Pro, the replacement... So Apple ranges on this from, I would say, the, the machine that was the, the best machine for getting at the guts immediately would be the TieBook. Yeah. The poor retired TieBook. You basically pulled two little tabs on the keyboard, pulled the keyboard off. There was everything right there, including the hard drive, from what I recall. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. Then on the other end of the spectrum is something like my, you know, old uh, PowerBook G4, 12 inch. Uh, that machine, you basically had to disassemble the entire machine to get to the drive. It was just, it was a beautifully built machine, nice form factor, no annoying tabs or you know jutting screws or anything like that. But you wanted to get at something inside of it, forget it, brother. Forget you're it. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be spending many many hours, and it, just because they didn't design it, I would say the MacBook Pro straddles that on the side of accessibility. So, and one of my favorite sites, and I think yours too, Dave, is iFixit.com. For this stuff, so these absolutely. Guys, out yep. of out of the kindness of their hearts, they post instructions on how to disassemble. Pretty much uh, most Macs, maybe not all the way back to the the very first, but certainly the the, the current batch. And from what I could see, the MacBook Pro 15 inch is moderate difficulty. And then you have to take off the uh, I think you got to pull out the battery. I think the RAM, um, there are screws on the side of the case. uh, And then eventually you you can pull up the top of the the case and get to the hard drive. think that that was your conclusion dave yeah you rate this as moderate difficulty you know dude here's the thing when taking apart a laptop and getting in at the hard drive you're right Mm. that's moderate difficulty to me the real trick is and this is the test of your metal can you get it back together to look the same and work (laughs) the same as it did when you started or before you started that that that's always the thing that gets me. And again, you know, uh, echoing back to my consulting days, I learned to really hate taking apart laptops because the, and the Apple stuff yeah. is not nearly as bad as some. There were some laptops, Wintel iron that uh, you you had to break something to get it open. I mean, that was part of the instructions. <laughs> some of the you know, it was just ridiculous. So I, I really I have an aversion to doing this. If I need a hard drive put in what I do is I send my MacBook with either with the drive or, you know, uh, to, to one of these places or bring it into my Apple, uh, you know, authorized Apple uh, solution provider here. 
and just have them do it. They've got all the right mm-hmm. tools. They know what to do. I've sent it off to tech restore before and done it that way. And you know, mm-hmm. if you're going on vacation for a couple of days, it's not so bad to be without your machine and you don't have to yeah. go through this sweat and stress of taking that thing. Up. I don't know. It's just not my thing. So, okay. Yeah, it, it is my thing. Cause I've done it, but okay. if you're going to do this sort of thing and, and uh, Pete, I think, uh, you know, resonated with this is, Make very, very, very careful track of what you take out because you will have to put it back in again. So if you take out four screws on the side of the case, get maybe a piece of masking tape or something, put the screws on there, do a little label saying this is where these screws went because guaranteed you will, unless you're, uh, you know, super genius, you will potentially lose track of what screws belong where. It so only takes 30 follow- seconds to forget. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and the worst thing to happen with the taking apart a Mac and putting in a new part and putting it back together, as we can all attest, well, there are two bad things. One is you have parts left over. The other is you ran out of parts. <laughs> 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 yeah. And, now, I've usually uh, had leftover parts, which it may not be critical if it's, you know, something that keeps a part of the case but uh, so so to go on to one one other angle here and then we'll we'll move on is so so my strategy for replacing hard drives and I, I can mention this because I just did it in my Dell I uh, some of you heard my workplace Dell ran out of space and I wanted to get a new drive so I went to the the Dell equivalent uh, on the Mac of course you can go to uh, about this Mac more info hardware and then serial ATA if you have a serial ATA bus uh, otherwise maybe something different um and you'll get the model number of your drive. Well, if you punch that in and be careful, because some of these are long, like mine was HTS 542525K9SA00, right? I, I, I <laughs> got that, bring yeah. up, And it'll bring up the model. In this case, it was, a, I believe, a Hitachi drive. Now, you may latch onto a data sheet for the drive or a place that sells them, and hopefully a place that sells them and has recommendations. Uh, in the case of the Dell I had, since it was dated, they had... Um, since I bought it, it, it was a 100 gig drive and they had a 200 gig drive. Cool. Okay. So if you're, you know, if it's a new machine, you're probably not going to find anything larger though. Actually I, I found, I guess our pals that I fix it also sell drives. And apparently in our form factor, Dave, the, the state of the art, uh, well, reasonable state of the art looks to be 320 now gigabytes for a laptop, uh, two and a half inch portable drive. At least in the form factor. Now, you and I kick this around a bit, though. you, you got to be careful also with replacing internal drives because some of them, sometimes the specs are a little loose and they may have a half-height and a full-height form factor. And I remember this in, in one portable that I had is that, fortunately, I had bought the limit of the height of the drive. I think it was 12.5 millimeters or something where if I'd gone anywhere beyond that, which some drives did, they were larger capacity, but they were also larger physically, they would not have fit into the portable. So uh, keep your eye on that as well as the interface. Yeah, um, you, you, you do. You need to be careful of the height of that drive because I think there are some, in fact, I, I'm not even sure. <laughs> I'm not even sure that the 12 and a half millimeter ones will work in the current MacBook Pro. I think it's like nine, but but I, that, that's just coming off the top of my head. I tried to do a quick search. Yeah, 9.5 millimeter max drive height for the uh, MacBook and MacBook Pro. And as Pete points out, if you put it one that's too big in, maybe your your uh, trackpad will stop working. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, let, let's uh, let's get Leon's question here. I know we're we're pushing our our time limit, but we've got mm-hmm. such a backlog of questions. There's no reason not to uh, not to hear from Leon here today. Hi, John and Dave. This is Leon from Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, longtime reader, first time caller. I guess that's how you can tell I'm a longtime reader. <laughs> I use that really old joke. Uh, two things I wanted to call about. In your latest podcast, you mentioned tiny URL and um, the concerns about just clicking on a link that uh, you don't know where it takes you. Well, if you go to the tiny URL website, they offer an option to set a cookie that allows you to always preview whenever you select the URL. So whenever you click on a tiny URL after you've set that, you jump to the tiny URL site and you get to see what you're going to be sent to. So it's a nice little precaution to set up. Mm, The other thing I was calling about is I have a question for you. I have an ISP like many who doesn't want me to provide services like web server and things like that from my home because they don't want me to run a business. But I want to use something like WebJimbo to access my YoJimbo notes remotely. Um, Now, I know I can change things around to use a custom port, to get around my ISP's limitation, just don't tell them about that. Um, I guess I shouldn't get caught, hopefully. Um, But the challenge is I like to access this from my office, and they don't allow any web traffic through our firewalls other than through port 80 or 443. So I'm kind of stuck. I can't use those ports on my home machine because of the ISP restrictions, but I can't access a non-standard port from work. I didn't know whether there was any kind of software or service or something I could do with my router that would give me an option to be able to access, to kind of proxy in uh, and do the translation for me, kind of like my router does when I want to uh, open a port on my local machine for like gaming or something like that. So I was hoping you might have an idea on how I could do that. Uh, you probably want to stop the tape. We will stop, stop the tape. That's right. Uh, okay, so my first thought as we were prepping the show, John, as we discussed, is let's find a different port because probably 80 and 443 aren't the only ports that your office allows out. Uh, there's really no way, if you can't connect on port 80 or 443 at home, there's no way to get some proxy to, to change it for you unless you have a proxy somewhere else, a third, a third party proxy. So that would be one way to do it. The other way would be to, you know, go to your IT guys or get creative and try and figure out, okay, what other ports do they allow connections out on? And is it possible that say the SSH port of 22 or 465, which is one of the alternate mail sending ports, 110, which is the port you check pop on, you know, chances are you're not running in SMTP or a pop server on your Mac. So you could set, you know, redirect to that port. And there's a lot of other ports that we came up with. John, let's let's actually finish this port thing, and then I'll explain why I think it might not work. But uh, um, what? Yeah, and I found that too. So like port 13, and I think for AIM at work, I use 80. Right, but normally use some 5,000 port. Yeah. Um, but no, in my case, it works. And and I think yeah, that I mentioned yeah. So 13, and so there's some low numbered ports with uh, various Unix services that a lot of routers uh, or firewalls depending on who set them up, we'll let them through because they think they're, they are valid requests from a you know a server or something. Right. Um, the, the thing is, if uh, unless they have, uh, I guess we'll call it a stateful firewall or a smart, you know, there are network devices that just say, oh, okay, you want to go through this port and you're on the network? Okay, sure. Right. Others will say, hmm, all right, what kind of traffic are you sending? 
Right. And if it looks too suspect, then they'll shut you down. So hopefully it's not the case. And as I found, and I think you found, Dave, you know, I can do aim at work, but not on, uh, again, I think it's 5190 what they normally do. But if I set it to 80 or 13 or, or a couple of other seven sub low level ports, it'll, it'll work just fine. Yep. So you, now how you find those is another story. Cause I think you don't want to run a port scan against your <laughs> probably router, not. unless you want your administrator to call yeah, so, you, which may be what you want. That's right. So maybe, <laughs> yeah, if you, if you have a, a decent rapport with your administrator and they understand what it is you're trying to do, uh, they may tell you, okay, yeah, look, you know, port 13 for network time protocol or 113 for identity is open. And uh, yeah, you know what? Go ahead and use it. But it's possible, like John said, you're either doing a stateful firewall or you're going through a proxy server at work and the proxy, your web browser can only talk to the proxy server and the proxy server will only allow your web browser to speak on ports 80 or 443. And if that's the case, Unless your ISP does not block 443 and some don't, uh, then, yeah, you're you're kind of that's kind of the end of the end of the road. So and I don't know about you, but I have not seen a proxy. I, I remember administering a proxy. I have not seen those for ages, maybe in small outfits or whatever. But my recollection is that's usually a big old bottleneck. <laughs> yeah. Some satellite providers use proxy. Um for for good reason and and then we actually we actually have some have one set up uh for some stuff that we do okay, uh, okay. a third party i can thing. just see the potential yeah. for a large group you know one place for everybody to dogpile is a bad idea unless you have a you know smart distributed kind of right proxy scheme right okay the band oh wow the band. they must have been chilly what well, what is going on here i thought it was may dave i think it is it's cold up here though <clears throat> we had a we had a wind High wind alert and a, a flood warning. I mean, what the heck is going on here? Mm. Michael Johnston of iPhone Alley is the one that converts this to AAC for you. And Michael has uh, his own podcast, which we've been desperately get trying to, to get me on. And, and schedules have been ter- horrendous. But uh, but the podcast has actually been fantastic and perhaps even better without me. Uh, so go to <laughs> iPhoneAlley.com slash podcast, I believe. And if that doesn't get you there, go to iPhone Alley and just click on the podcast. He's had some great guests. He's had Jeff Gamut from TMO, Adam Christensen, from a friend over at MacCast, Bill Palmer from iProng. It's, and, and, and many others. And it, it, it's a fantastic show. He's only up to episode, like, I think number three. And wow. he, I mean, he's firing on all cylinders and then some. So check that out. Also, go ahead. Adam, right? I did mention Adam. Do we, yeah. do we trounce Adam? Oh, you know, I, <laughs> I just well, we started so it last long. time. Yeah, I think I think we Hi, did. Adam. I think we did pass Adam's number of comments. So uh, <laughs> thank but you. We like seeing the comments. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> They were good comments. Thank you very much. And, yeah. Uh, we love the iTunes Adam's comments. Adam's our buddy. Hi, he Adam. is. Pilot Pete has a podcast, and I think it's it. What? Yeah. Well, everybody has a podcast Yeah, now. and I think you can, uh, I don't think it's in iTunes yet. It in is. The iTunes. Oh, it is in the iTunes directory. Search Box Sweet. AV8R, B-O-X, Alpha Victor, 8 Romeo. There you go. Boxaviator.net. Uh, there you go, Boxaviator.net. You can hear Pilot Pete's podcast. Say that 10 times fast. Cashfly is the place that provides all the bandwidth for you to download this show and get it to your computer and iPod and iPhone. Oh, I'm going to make a, I'm going to go way out on a limb here, John. 
And uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to make a wild prediction Go. that tomorrow morning, Apple is going to announce the 3G iPhone and sell it on, on Wednesday. So I'm just going to say that. Now, are you saying that because you can't buy any of the current product and they're all out of stock? Or, or is it some other? But that's, <laughs> that's one. I heard. That's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle <laughs> is that about a month ago, there were various uh, reports that this was going to happen in May and not June. And, mm. and then the third piece of the puzzle is that an AT&T rep uh, last week on the Apple Insider Forum, somebody uh, posted a, tra- mm. a chat transcript with either an AT&T rep or an Apple online you know, support rep saying uh, there's an announcement coming next week. So Oh, and it's Tuesday. And it's Tuesday. You got it. Yep. So, Apple loves Tuesday. Why, why? I don't know. Do you know? I, no, I, why do they do this on Tuesdays? Well, because it's not Monday. You got all day Monday to get ready for it. Yeah, and and then you've got, uh, and then you've got the rest of the week for uh, the stock price to go up and and get ready for the weekend. So I think that's mm-hmm. that's why the podcast oh, marketplace stock has been doing great. The stock's been back in business. The podcast marketplace includes the A5 and A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, Text Expander from Smile on My Mac. Uh, Ecamm Network, which is the home of Call Recorder for Skype, and of course, Harmon-Etravel.com. I think that's it. We're good, right? It's uh, good. The audio behaved all the way through this show, I say, with 10 seconds to go. No problems. Life is really good. Mm. 206-666-GEEK is the number to call. All right, fellas, it's up for grabs. Oh, wait, sorry about that. Go ahead. Don't get caught. I created my own audio problem. <laughs> Made up.